0: Hello and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast where we talk about interesting work in natural language
1: processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. So today we'll discuss how contextualized embeddings can help improve modeling of protein sequences. Our guests, Roshan Rao and Neil Thomas are PhD students at UC Berkeley. They are two of the co-authors on the NeurIPS 2019 paper titled Evaluating Protein Transfer Learning with Tape other co-authors include Nicholas Bhattacharya and other researchers. The paper introduces a benchmark of five modeling tasks for protein sequences and experiments with improving the neural network models used for these tasks by language model pre-training. Could you start by telling us what protein sequences are?
2: So a protein, it's a polymer that's made up of a chain of single molecules, which are called amino acids. There are 20 or so naturally occurring amino acids, and they get strung together in a linear chain. And then in the cell, it folds into a three-dimensional structure, which then goes along and performs some sort of important biological task, like bringing oxygen to your muscles or interpreting signals of light that are coming from the outside. So proteins in your eye would do something like that. Proteins do everything that is important, basically. Don't at me.
1: (laughs) Sorry, a naive question, but I think the audience would like to know. Why is it important to build computational models of protein sequences?
0: Well, so proteins have, as Neil said, proteins perform a lot of functions. uh, And you can go out and experimentally measure and evaluate these functions in a lab. But doing so is kind of expensive and difficult. And there's a lot of reason to believe that the function, the structure, and all of the things that we'd like to know about a protein are encoded in its sequence So if we could take that sequence and just predict those qualities that we'd like to know, then that would save a lot of expensive and time-consuming effort by biologists in the lab.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add that we're collecting sequences constantly, all the time. People are just going out, scooping up dirt, and putting it on a sequencer and producing tens of millions of sequences. Some of them are redundant with ones we know already, but the gap between what's experimentally characterized and the sequences that we know of is growing super exponentially, potentially. On the flip side, the experimental characterization that I'm talking about The most detailed one maybe would be to get a high resolution structure. And to get a high resolution structure, depending on the protein can take an entire PhD. So that's one structure for one sequence.
0: To give a super exponentially a bit of context, I believe the size of some of these data sets is actually growing faster than Moore's law. So that kind of says if taking one PhD to evaluate a single sequence, and not every task is that difficult, but still it's very difficult
2: to keep up with that rate of growth. And I think that another goal here is we're not trying to replace biologists with neural networks. What we're trying to do is augment biology with some sort of modeling in situations where you just can't do the experimental work, or the assay is too hard, or the bacteria that builds your protein can't be cultured. In these types of situations, as a biologist, you could use a model to help you.
1: So is this currently happening? Do biologists today use computational models? Or is this something that like we hope will happen more in the future?
2: Yeah, there's a range of use. So for example, secondary structure prediction definitely uses some neural network models. A lot of the like protein function prediction happens using hidden Markov model based pipelines. I think that potentially some room for neural network models to come in and help there. There is actually quite a fruitful history of collaboration between biology and computation. Not all biologists use computational models, but there's definitely some overlap.
0: Yeah, and even some of the older representation learning work, if you look at the Doctovac and Wortevac papers, those were techniques were applied to, to proteins uh, to accelerate things like protein engineering, where you actually have to develop these models in order to constrain your search space. And so definitely there is some history of these models being I think the more modern NLP BERT-style models are a little too new for them to have really gotten a lot of traction, and I think it's still a little unclear as to where they're best applied and how they're best applied, but that's kind of what our work trying to answer that question.
1: I, say, I think that's uh, that's a very exciting area. But before we go into the details of pre-training contextualized embeddings and self-supervision, I wanted to ask you, in what ways do you think protein sequences are similar and different from text? you know the audience of this podcast are mostly nlp uh, practitioners and researchers so um, i think it would help to kind of like uh, have a frame of reference with with
2: respect to text they're totally different <laughs> i mean they are sequences i think that's the tantalizing analogy that everyone wants to make is biological sequences are sequences of characters and so is natural language But a protein is a three-dimensional molecule. It has like a three-dimensional structure. It has biophysical properties that can be measured, electron density that's spread out in different densities around a molecule. There's also this aspect of proteins have like lots of randomness. So there might be a portion of your protein that's very solid and cannot be changed, but then it might have little pieces of spaghetti coming off of it that can just move around randomly, or like that can kind of be any sequence of characters at all. So you could imagine reading a protein sentence, going along and being like, yeah, this is a word, this is a word, and then you get a string of gibberish. And I think that that introduces a tough modeling constraint. The last part is that proteins actually evolve on the level of sequence. So a gene from generation to generation can be edited via certain mechanisms, so insertions, deletions, and mutations. And it's similar to typos, I guess, if you want an analogy, but there's a fitness that is associated with the gene. So the better the protein can perform its function, the more likely it is to be passed from generation to generation. And so randomness will accumulate in parts of the sequence that are less important for its function, and parts of the sequence that are more important will become highly constrained. So I think those are all pretty different from text. Are there
0: any structural constraints on uh, what kinds of protein sequences are expected and what are not? Is there an analogy to some sort of a grammar in protein sequences? Certainly, there are repeated subsequences that perform particular functions. The largest constraint, as Neil said, is function, because that is what is being selected by evolution is the function of the protein. And the function is mostly determined by structure. So structure is actually reasonably well-conserved as evolution changes, obviously eventually you will have structural changes but because structure directly determines function you get some conservation there you actually though can change protein sequence at that sequence level quite a bit or at least you can make some relatively large changes in the sequence space without affecting the structure too much and so that leads to this problem where the thing that you have the kind of invariant is the structure and you have the sequence space which is the the actual input to your model that you're going to get can match relatively large number of input sequences to the same or very similar structure. So that can be another challenge.
2: I wanted to give an example maybe of a protein type grammar. So there's kind of a, a local grammar in terms of secondary structure. I'm using the word grammar completely loosely. For example, alpha helices are sort of coils or turns that emerge from sequences of amino acids. And every four positions, the two positions that are separated by four in the sequence are closest together. And so their interaction has to conform to some set of constraints, basically. Their interaction can't be so repulsive that they won't form this this helix, for example. And then the other structural constraint is something that we call the hydrophobic core. So in general, a protein tries to protect the amino acids that interact poorly with water. So water is polar, so hydrophilic amino acids will interact beneficially with water, and hydrophobic amino acids, which are kind of more like fatty or have like long hydrocarbon chains, for example, will interact more poorly with water. So the protein will fold in such a way to move what are called hydrophobic, water fearing amino acids to its center. So there's actually another structural constraint there. I don't know. Do you consider that a grammar? I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I want to reflect these questions back. But
1: well, I do think it imposes certain like constraints on what kind of protein sequence would survive or would be functional. Right? Yeah. So this is, in spirit, what a grammar does. But maybe it's not exactly the same notion of grammar that we use in language. And that's fine, I think. That's why we are seeing some uh, positive results of retraining with self-supervision. So before we delve into this, I feel like there's another fundamental difference, is that there is nobody who is native in the language of protein sequences. One really good thing about studying language is that you can ask someone who understands this language, is my model prediction correct? And in protein sequences, my understanding is even biologists are puzzled, right? Oftentimes, they don't know what this sequence is doing. Like, what's the function of this protein?
2: I think there are some people who are fluent in protein structures. I've recently heard about these protein structure savants who will look at a partial structure and be like, ah, yes, this, this is folded with this characteristic. And you're like, oh, wow, this, this guy's crazy. But um, it, it's a big problem for like generating protein sequences, for example, I think there's a lot of cool work that's being done in NLP about finding pathological examples that these natural language generation models make either copying or like repeats or ungrammatical things. But when you generate a protein sequence, no one has any idea. The only thing you can do is go synthesize it and see if it's pathological and or not. Obviously, that's probably one of the most
0: expensive evaluation methodologies that you could come up with. But there are groups that will, when you're working on generation in particular, actually take their generated proteins, synthesize them in a lab and measure the function of interest that they were trying to achieve. That's certainly a very interesting task. It's also obviously a very challenging task that also requires connections to biologists and to
2: other people who can facilitate the kind of wet work of doing that this gets back to your first point about like why we care about studying protein sequences at all which is this amount of labeled data issue is very different than nlp if you have a natural language data set or at least in my my experience from what i've been told if you have a natural language data set you can go to um, Amazon Mechanical Turk and hire some people pretty cheaply to label your data. And that was one of the first questions that like Peter Abiel came and posed. It's like, let's just label more data. Like, do we have a way of labeling more data? And yeah, we do. But it's a biologist or some sort of biochemist going into the lab, synthesizing sequences, culturing some organism to grow it, creating the protein, et cetera, et cetera. It's not something that a turker can do for 15 cents an hour right? It's just not going to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, to be honest, also, there are some NLP tasks which are you cannot really outsource or uh, crowdsource, but uh, we're seeing a very like clear transition in the NLP literature towards tasks which are easier to annotate, just because the crowdsourcing is becoming much more effective in, in producing large amounts of label data. So, okay, so now uh, inspired by all this uh, modeling improvements in NLP with self-supervision and contextualized embeddings, I've seen a few papers in modeling protein sequences that try to do the same thing with caveats, right? This paper that you're introducing in Europe is very much in the same line of work. And I wanted to ask you, how do you position this paper with respect to the previous work on this area?
0: I think all of us came into it wanting to get into protein modeling in some respect and wanting to, you know, apply BERT or something to proteins. And as we were doing some study and some lit review in this field, we also came across all of these different uh, papers that had done this work. And we found it very difficult to look at this and get any sort of consensus as to what models were people using. Even very broadly, were they using convolutional models? Were they using recurrent models? Were they using transformers? What data sets, how do you evaluate a representation model? I think every single paper we looked at had their own set of tasks. And then even when they evaluated on the same kind of fundamental task, they had different data sets, different training sets, evaluation sets. So it became very difficult to look at one paper's claim and another paper's claim and say, How do we do science with this? How do we say our goal is to kind of improve state of the art? If we can't evaluate what state of the art is, then we can't really improve it. So that kind of became one of the the driving forces behind this paper was to say, okay, let's come up with a set of tasks that we can evaluate different models on. These tasks should be relatively broad. Across all of protein biology, since there are so many different things that people want to do with proteins. So they shouldn't focus on the same area. And they should also have relatively large training and evaluation sets so that you're not training on, you know, a couple hundred training examples to try and evaluate that we found that that creates really noisy evaluations. As we came up with these criteria, we have three aims with this paper, which are to propose these benchmark tasks so that people can use them to evaluate on. Also to introduce people outside of the field who might be working in natural language processing, who might be working in machine learning to the field and to kind of tell them why these tasks are interesting, why they're important. If I tell you that I've solved question answering, I think most people who come from an ML background or an NLP background immediately see why that's a useful thing to do. On the other hand, if I tell you that I solved secondary structure prediction for most of the listeners of this podcast, that probably means nothing. So that's one of the big goals of this paper is to say why... Is this an important task to solve? And why, if you devote your time, will you be doing a good thing? And lastly, it's to look at the different models that have been proposed, whether those are these new BERT based models, whether they're ELMO style models, even some convolutional models, and to say, okay, if we evaluate these with the same pre training data, with the same downstream evaluation tasks, with the same number of parameters and same amount of pre training, can we actually see? what the differences between these models are, is there a difference between them, and do the same things that work well in natural language processing also work well for protein biology. So one of the factors you mentioned was a relatively the existence of a relatively large data set for the tasks that are chosen I guess this notion of what it means for a data set to be relatively large varies across uh, fields What does it mean in yours So if we looked at some of the data sets that had been evaluated against previously I think there were a couple with one or 200 training examples and then a dozen testing example. And that, when you have a model that has 30 million, 40 million parameters, it's very easy to overfit to. And we found that if you actually try to use these, a lot of it depends on kind of your downstream training hyperparameters. And that was just not what, that's not something that's really good in an evaluation metric. The number of examples in our tasks varies. All of them have over two or three thousand training examples. This is for the supervised for downstream the supervised, tasks. Yes. Yeah. I think the largest of them have something like twenty to twenty five thousand training examples. The smallest of them have around three thousand training examples. Enough that changing small aspects of the model does not result in large changes to your performance on
2: the downstream tasks
1: so that's maybe a good segue to ask you about what are the 5 tasks that you have in the
2: benchmark we categorize them into three meta categories the structural tasks evolutionary tasks and engineering tasks structural tasks are maybe the ones that people are most familiar with it's kind of been made famous since deepmind entered into this protein folding competition secondary structure prediction is a sequence-to-sequence task where at each position in the protein, you want to label that position as being in a helix or in a beta sheet or this coil, kind of more random structure. And this would be useful input for people trying to build three-dimensional models of proteins. Because if you can model the local structure, then you can put some constraints on the global structure. There's also this contact prediction, so that's the other structural task. And the idea is once one-dimensional chain folds in 3D, then different positions in that chain will be close together. And if they're within a certain threshold, eight angstroms in this case, then they're considered to be in contact. So it's basically a binary prediction task on pairs within the sequence. And this is also really valuable information for people trying to build three-dimensional structures of the protein because positions that are in contact greatly restrict the possible confirmations that the protein can take. Then there's another type of task which we call an evolutionary task, which is basically looking at sequences that are not very similar in sequence space and trying to see if they fall into the same kind of structural category, which in this case is fold. So now this is not the position of every single molecule, it's sort of a higher level categorization. Does this thing take a barrel shape? Does this thing have some transmembrane type of shape, etc. So these kind of broader categorizations being mapped across large portions of sequence space is what we tested in the evolutionary task, which we called remote homology detection. So remote refers to the sequence space, homology refers to that similar structural category. Yeah, and just Quickly
0: interjecting, that kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier about how you can modify a sequence with relatively large changes while maintaining the same structure, because that structure is what actually determines function, and so you can modify the sequence as long as you're not altering that downstream structure.
1: I'd like to clarify something. When we talk about a specific protein, the way we identify that protein is by using the sequence. So even if there is one amino acid that's different, then we would say it's a different protein, but maybe has very similar function.
2: Usually the way I think about proteins is each species has an orthologous gene. So, you know, let's say a sea or something has a green fluorescent protein, but also some sort of potato fungus has a green fluorescent protein. So both of those kind of prefer form the same function and we can see that they're evolutionarily related. But So you have the sequence, which is the specific gene, and you have the species that it comes from. And then if you mutate a single position, usually we think of that as like a variant of a wild type. Yeah, you're right. The language that we've been using, the sequence determines the identity of the protein. So a single amino acid change would be considered a new example.
1: And when we talk about the remote homology detection, to what extent is this the same as a protein function prediction? Because you previously mentioned that structure dictates what the function is. So wondering if there's like a one-to-one mapping or is it more loosely defined?
2: Yeah, I think this is a step down the path towards protein function prediction. This would be a really good first step if you can identify the fault of a brand new protein. Labeling function is actually really complicated. So this is a nice boiled down task that represents that.
1: Another thing that is not clear to me in, in the remote homology problem, my understanding is that the same protein sequence would have subsequences or like parts of it that fold in different ways. So maybe one protein sequence will have, I don't know, the first third of it should be labeled as, I don't know, a certain fold, and then the middle part will be folded in a different way. So this doesn't necessarily seem to be a classification task.
2: Yeah, I think you've identified perhaps a point of confusion for a lot of people. So there are protein sequences are usually divided into domains, which are sort of structurally regular components of the protein. So yeah, like you said, the first part of the protein might take on a certain shape, and then the second part would take on some other shape. Basically, all of these tasks operate on protein domains. So the sequence that you're getting is known to be from a sort of single structural category. We haven't tested on full proteins. A lot of proteins only have one domain, so this is a perfectly reasonable test to do. But for proteins that are multi-domain, it would require further experimentation.
1: And how do you find the domains in a protein? Seems like also not obvious.
2: Yeah, so there are existing pipelines for labeling the domain within a protein. If you actually image the protein, for example, you can look at the structure directly and then try to tease out which parts of the longer protein sequence are the domain. The pre-training data set we use called PFAM, protein family, All of those protein families operate on the level of domain so the domains are evolutionarily related all the sequence examples are single domains the knowledge of which part of the protein or which part is a single domain has been given to us
1: got it and they're all all the tests all the data sets that you're uh, using for the benchmark are compatible like we all use the pfam as its like foundation or like the source for the sequences
0: so contact certainly doesn't so it kind of gets into a lot of details it's actually the most similar to what you might find if you went out into the real world, or it's fairly similar because it's taken from the CASP competition, the critical assessment of protein structure prediction. What that task does is the proteins from that are actually newly experimentally determined for the competition. And so They are people, biologists who go out, determine structures of new proteins, and explicitly hold them back in order for them to be used in the competition. So that does not I believe, correlate with this single domain analogy very well. One of the things that some people do in that task is this idea of domain segmentation. So they'll go out and split the protein into its domains and then run the task separately on each domain. And And that's not something that we did. So that's kind of a downstream task evaluation pipeline that could be improved. We felt that it was an important task to include because... Uh, it is such a well-known and also it is the protein structure task, which is a, a huge area of computational biology. But yeah, that that is kind of something that does seem to help. If you want to get absolutely the best performance on that data set is to do some sort of domain segmentation and then run your predictor on the individual domains.
1: Got it. Thank you. So now you described two tasks that has to do with structured prediction, one that focuses on evolution understanding. And you're going to talk about protein engineering.
2: Yeah. So protein engineering has huge potential for impact. It's very difficult to engineer new proteins. So that, that's, we tried to identify two types of sequence generalization that would be useful to protein engineers, at least in theory. So in the fluorescence task, we use a single domain protein, GFP, which fluoresces green. Green fluorescent protein is what GFP stands for. We construct our training and test set such that so we have a wild type protein, everything within four mutations of the wild type we train on and everything outside of four mutations we test on. So this tries to challenge the model to do generalization to parts of sequence space that it's never seen before, and is sort of the most useful type of generalization to a protein engineer because exploring that space is basically impossible. It's just too expensive. It, the combinatorics blow up really quickly. And then we also have this stability task, which actually uses completely unnatural, like engineered proteins, not natural proteins that occur. And the sequence generalization, that we tested here was sort of more like interpolation within sequence space. So if you see maybe some points surrounding a test protein, then can you infer what the stability of the test protein would be?
1: So that when we talk about the stability, what temperature would this protein stay folded in?
2: Yeah, so this stability data set comes from a test where the protein is exposed to a protease, which is a another protein that will cleave proteins and cut them. So the question is, how well does it resist cleavage?
1: Got it. So that's a specific way of breaking the fold of a protein, right? Why do we care so much about this specific way uh, as opposed to like heating it, right? I don't know. Again, this is probably a very naive question. I
0: don't think it's a naive question. It's actually the protein engineering tasks are not really designed for the function itself to be very important or or necessarily important to everyone. Because what you would actually want to do is when you're engineering your own protein, you're going to have your own function that you're interested in that probably maybe no one has done before, or that is something that's very different. So you won't be able to take an off the shelf model and apply it to your own protein task. So what this is really trying to get at is, in the case of fluorescence, for example, you have this Hamming distance three ball around your wild type protein. So you could go out into the lab and say, I know that this protein that I have does pretty well at this function. So I'm gonna go out and make some mutations to it, but I'll mutate no more than three amino acids at once. And that's still within the realm of feasible. It's already hard. It's already hard. (laughs) That's, you know, the protein length, like there are 20 amino acids per position and you, you know, raise that to the protein length power. So that's the number of mutations, the number of possible proteins that you could have. You're doing three possible mutations. So it's definitely a challenging task. You could take that and it's still doable. And then you could get your model to try and extrapolate, say, okay, if I did four mutations, if I did 10 mutations, where should I explore? because there's no way I'm going to be able to do every single combination of 10 mutations on a protein. But if my model can tell me, hey, the proteins over here in sequence space seem to be doing pretty well. So maybe just restrict yourself to searching in that area. Then that can be a really useful signal and can help you iterate more quickly on your experiments and constrain that search space so that it's actually become something feasible from something that's combinatorially completely impossible.
1: Can I clarify one more thing about the fluorescence landscape prediction task? So, I hear a lot, like as I'm reading in this area of research, I hear a lot about how important fluorescence is for biologists to actually observe a certain phenomenon that they're trying to discover, right? Or find whether this protein is expressed or not. Is this going to be the primary function of a protein, but something that we need in order to be able to detect it? But the protein essentially, we also, we don't really care so much uh, in real life how fluorescent it is, but we care about its function, but it's only a measure of uh, whether it's existing or not.
2: There are sort of multiple components to that question. The first one is you're absolutely right that fluorescence is really important for experimentalists. Fluorescent tags are, for example, how we can track protein movement throughout the cell. Let's say I applied some drug to my cell and I tagged some protein of interest, then I could see if that drug affected the production of that protein, the localization within the cell. Fluorescent tags are also important for imaging. Fluorescence of proteins is an important function that people do care about. Green isn't the only one, for example. Like creating a better red fluorescent protein could help people a lot the other part of your question was sort of do we care about the brightness versus whether it fluoresces or not at all
1: well i guess uh, that was not very clear sorry um I guess my question is, if we know that this protein is pretty visible when you're doing experimentation, why do we need to create variations of it?
0: So for example, in this experiment, they were trying to maximize fluorescence, but that's more of a proof of concept of the idea of what protein engineering could achieve because fluorescence is a very easily measurable value. So you can go out and run your methodology and run your task on it and, and measure that quantity. And that gives you you like a really clear, really straightforward way of, of measuring a quantity of interest. Now, if you're kind of a drug development lab, you probably want to measure a very different quantity of like interest. Antibody like antibody binding, for yeah, example. So like binding affinity or stability is uh, plausibly a very important quantity of interest to measure. But again, if you're doing this yourself, what you want to do is take a model and train it on the data that you generate yourself, because you're going to be probably working with new proteins, probably working with a a new kind of setup. Maybe you'll be working with a a new function of interest. Maybe you'll be working with new technology or new kind of solvent or or substrate or or new, new cells. And that's not going to generalize necessarily from an off-the-shelf model that was trained on a different task. But if our models do well on fluorescence and stability, that suggests that they're able to really quickly learn and really quickly interpolate in this sequence space. And you would be able to then go out, train your own models, and use them for the task that you're
1: interested in. Right, yeah, thank you for clarifying this. That was not uh, clear to me at the beginning whether... You're proposing these tasks because of their diversity or because they're fundamentally important for most biologists. So, yeah, thank you for clarifying. The next question would be what kind of architectures, neural architectures, you used to pre-train the models?
0: Yeah, so we used transformer architecture that's pretty similar to BERT. We used convolutional architecture, which is a, a ResNet with approximately the same number of parameters. And then we used a multi-layer LSTM, based architecture bidirectional LSDM that had a lot of similarities to the Elmo paper. And again, we basically took the BERT based hyperparameters and then tried to match the number of parameters in each model so that we weren't giving one model, you know, 40 million parameters and one model like 4 million parameters. We've also trained some smaller versions of these models that do only have about 10% of the number of parameters. And as you would expect correspondingly, they perform worse. But one thing we found that was really interesting is that for the most part, the order was preserved as we trained larger and smaller models that if one model did better than another in the small scenario, it continued to do better than than the other in the uh, large-scale scenario.
1: Okay, so that suggests it's reasonable to start with the smaller sizes to have a faster experimentation cycle. Yeah. Interesting. How did they do first on the pre-training task, on the language modeling task?
0: It's kind of hard to evaluate on the language modeling task because, again, no one is fluent in proteins, right? So it's hard to know what, you know, if I have a perplexity of six or seven or eight or 10, it's kind of difficult to know what's reasonable and to look at the predicted outputs and say is this what you would expect? Looking at some of the perplexities, we see some of them have perplexity around six or seven. There are 20 amino acids that are common. I think we say that the vocab size is 25 because there are certain uncommonly occurring amino acids that are in the data set that involve variants on more commonly occurring amino acids but realistically those occur a very very small fraction of the time so if you look at you know what does a perplexity of, of six or seven out of total vocab size of maybe 20 really mean that could mean that it's really learned a lot it could mean that it has a long way to go i think none of the models that we trained were overfit i think they all were still underfit to the uh to the pre-training sets, they could have all been trained for longer. We had to cut it off at some point due to, you know, compute restrictions and constraints. But there's another paper out of NYU and Facebook that did train an even larger model on even more data for longer than we did, and I think they still said that their model was underfit. So clearly, there is a lot of information to learn, and they can continue to be trained for longer.
2: Something that's interesting also, it's not clear that there's a one-to-one mapping between language modeling performance and downstream task performance. This is a moment to reflect on what's the role of amino acid modeling, language modeling pre-training. In these protein type tasks, there's lots of other information on the table. Things like the protein family that it comes from, maybe taxonomy, or like what species it comes from. You you could use other predictors, other classification, other labels that come with your protein. We think that there's still signal in like language modeling still like remaining still out there on the table, but it's not clear that just pushing perplexity down is the goal.
1: Right. Of course, the most appealing thing about language modeling is that the labels come for free. Very fitting to the title of your paper, it would be very cool to see a matrix of how each of the tasks, not just the pre-training tasks, but also each of the five tasks help as a pre-training for the other ones.
0: Yeah, that's actually, you know, there are papers that, that do something similar to this. And we tried to evaluate one of them more directly. And one thing you have to keep in mind is that this is also a problem in NLP and vision, but we worked really hard to make sure that the training set and test sets of each individual task were non overlapping because if you train on proteins that are 90% similar to proteins in your test set, then obviously you can do really well. But on the other hand, that's not really interesting problem because then there raises the question of why you're using such a complicated model anyway. Because if you have a 90 to 95% similarity to something that has a measured quantity, you can probably just go and look up the answer to what you think this protein is doing. And so if you want to do multitask training or to, to do this cross task pre-training, you not only have to make sure that each training and test set of individual tasks are siloed so that you're not sharing information, but then you have to perform this across every single uh, downstream task. And that starts to really restrict the training set for some of these tasks. For example, some of the proteins in the secondary structure prediction test set are from scope, and that's a common training set for lots of other people. So you have to make sure that you're very careful to do this. Uh, it's something we've thought about doing in the future for maybe tape version 2, if that becomes a thing, but we could make more effort to make sure that not only do we curate data sets that allow you to train and evaluate within the task, but that also allow you to do this multitask matrix style pre-training and, and evaluation so that you don't have to worry about sharing information across tasks either. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. The point you made about Train test validation splits earlier was also very important. Can you tell us a bit about how you did those splits for your experiments? So some of them come from existing data sets where people have made an effort to do these splits already. So secondary structure, contact prediction, and homology all come from existing data sets where other people have gone out and done this uh, this data set splitting themselves. And and there there are kind of metrics that you can use to determine the similarity between two proteins, you'd set a threshold that basically says, okay, are these two proteins too similar? And if they're too similar, I won't include them. Then we also did a couple things. Uh, So for the engineering tasks, we defined kind of our own metrics of similarity with the goal of testing particular forms of generalization. So for fluorescence, that was this hamming distance generalization. If you train on proteins that are only a handful of mutations away from your source and then evaluate on mutations that are farther away from your source. That's testing a very specific form of generalization. And then for stability, we use a different form of generalization, which is you train on kind of a wide variety of proteins, and then you test on proteins that are nearby to those proteins and see if you can actually infill the gaps in the space that you were trained on. kind of test these two very different forms of generalization. And then also for evaluating one of the models that we trained, that was the Peppler et al. model. That one does do this supervised pre training in the same style that you were suggesting. And they actually train on contact prediction and homology detection. And they use two different training sets to do that. But we were not able to use directly the training sets that they use and and the model that they trained because those training examples were present in our test set. So then we went through and recurated their training set to remove examples that were too similar to our test set and then retrained their model with that stripped down training set. And of course, that hurts the performance of the model in all likelihood, because I think we had to remove 30 to 40% of the data for being too similar to the test set.
2: We're talking about like holding out entire relationship. Let's say we have a common grandparent, and you've never seen your uncle and aunt's family before and you're like is this person from a common grandparent and so this is the type of the the type of restriction that we're using so there's kind of like this hierarchy on proteins that you can establish and then you can hold out entire families and what are called super families and then see if you can determine whether they're from a common structural ancestor
1: i've seen a paper which does uh, hierarchical clustering basically on the basis of uh, the sequences themselves And then it cuts off basically at a a higher level of the hierarchy to say these are like the super families and any one family must be must belong to either train or dev or test?
0: I think that's somewhat similar, yeah. So there are, a, I believe, three levels of similarity that we use in the homology paper or the homology task. The closest level is family level, and then you've got super family level, and then you have fold level. If you look at the three evaluations, as you assert that there is a larger gap between your training and test set, you obviously decrease performance. So for the task where you only hold out out at the family level, which is like the, the most similar, you don't allow proteins that are extremely
2: similar to one another, but you allow like common grandparents, for example. The reason that this is interesting is because proteins can take the same fold when their sequence similarity is very, very low, less than 15%. If you used sequence-based comparison methods, you would look at these two proteins and say they're nothing alike. But if you were to look at their structure, you'd see that they actually are derived from common structural ancestor, or that they've evolved the same structure. Maybe they're not from the same ancestor, but that they've borrowed the same solution to this problem. This double-barrel fold is one of my yeah. favorites. For and this.
0: you can definitely see that it's super important to do this because if you look at the the difference in kind of accuracy our highest model gets something like 26% accuracy and that's on the most distant relationship but if you look at the closest relationship uh, i think all of our models get over 90% accuracy and our best models get like 97 or 98% accuracy so defining the distance in, in an evolution space and in sequence space becomes extremely important for how well you think your model is doing
1: uh, actually so i in the, in the paper uh, i'm seeing I'm looking at the table two and the results for the homology column it looks like you used the hardest split basically
2: yeah because that's the one that's most relevant when you're looking at brand new sequences from domains of life that you've never seen before there's really no guarantee that you'll see a sequence that's of high similarity even in like the pre-training sets that we're talking about even the very biggest protein sequence data sets we're seeing brand new sequences all the time
1: got it this is super cool super interesting what's the main highlight from the results
2: you know, we really wanted to see one bold rogue. Everyone wants to see this model is uniformly best at all of the tasks. It learned the most from the pre-training setup and was able to just kill the downstream tasks. This is not what we saw. So it seems like there's quite a lot of room left to explore in terms of modeling choices for protein sequences. It's hard to explain without explaining alignment in detail, but the basic principle is that you can get featureizations of protein sequences using traditional bioinformatic methods that are non-neural and that rely on sort of local sequence similarity to construct families. And then from this family, they get some statistics about the distribution of amino acids in sort of each column of the alignment at each position in the sequence, and that is the like relevant featureization for a sequence. And we see that this type of more traditional featureization, which has been in use for a long time and for good reason, does really well on the structural tasks. There are some tasks for which it's not applicable because you can't construct alignments from engineered proteins. Alignments are constructed on naturally occurring sequences. So we can't evaluate that type of featureization on every task. I think that there's a, like some interesting philosophical points here, which is protein language modeling pre-training has to learn so much it has to look at all of these sequences and start to find patterns and similarities and also like filter out all the randomness and the positions that are not conserved in the language here. Whereas alignments give you important information in local in sequence space. Maybe a lot of the informative information for your protein of interest is is right nearby. You don't have to look very far away, which may be what I think that those are at least two high level takeaways that I think mean that there's a ton of room to grow here. Absolutely. Which is maybe the one high-level takeaway.
1: I can't remember, did you augment the alignment features with the pre-trained features uh, from the language modeling, or did you replace them?
0: We replaced them. The alignment features, in fact, have a lot of disadvantages relative to the neural model. And that's actually one thing we wanted to really push in this paper, is that even if you fine-tune the full model, if you do all of the tricks that people have discovered to making... Uh, pre-trained models do as well as possible that this gap still exists so looking at for example the contact prediction or the secondary structure prediction task we fine-tuned the full model for the neural-based models and so they have more parameters they have full information sharing and, and everything along the entire pipeline and they still lose in fact for for the contact prediction task really We didn't even use the full state-of-the-art pipeline for using alignment features. There's actually a few additional steps that people use, and that boosts their performance even more with alignment-based features. But even with that disadvantage, and even with giving the neural-based methods as many advantages as we could, there's still that gap that exists. So clearly just doing language modeling does not seem to be pulling out as much information as the existing bioinformatics pipeline does, at least for some of these tasks. So I think that's definitely an important thing to highlight, an important difference from protein modeling to NLP is that there are is empirical evidence that there is a lot more signal that we could be pulling out that we aren't pulling out. So I think that's a really, really interesting line of research.
1: Right. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up that we didn't really discuss?
2: I mean, I think that there's like also an optimistic point, which is that, uh, well, one, there's a lot of room to grow, but that that's sort of the more pessimistic. Pre-training helped. We show some qualitative and some quantitative results that just looking at a lot of protein sequences can help you on these downstream tasks and i think that that's sort of that's that's what's so tantalizing here is that it's working a little but there's clearly a lot of room to grow and yeah i guess the the takeaway for for listeners if you're you're bored of natural language and you're bored of images (laughs) uh we've got a lot of proteins for you to look at. all
1: right thank you very much for joining us today thanks
2: Wooly. thanks for having us on